Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Okay, we can make a start of it. We're coming. Very pleased to have Nicole Corrato with us, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for Global Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. She's doing a million amazing projects. Um, I will uh, read just her standard bio, but I think we'll get a sense of the richness of her work today. I'm very excited about the things she's doing. So she's Senior Research Fellow again. Fellow again at the uh, Center for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra, working with John Bryzek and his great crew. Um, she's the author of the forthcoming book, Democracy in a Time of Misery, From Spectacular Tragedy to Deliberative Action with Oxford University Press. And she's the editor of the book, The Duterte Reader, Critical Essays on Rodrigo Duterte's Early Presidency with Cornell University Press. In 2015, she was a recipient of the Australian Research Council's Discovery Early Career Fellowship for her work on democratic innovations in post-disaster contexts. She's a regular contributor to CNN, Al Jazeera, ABC News Australia, and the New York Times, among others. So please, Nicole. Right. Well, thank you, Liu, and thank you for inviting me to be here. I always welcome every opportunity to escape Canberra winter, so this is very welcome. Um, I realize that I haven't met most of the people in the room, so I'd like to begin by locating my presentation in relation to my broader scholarly project. And as Lou kind of mentioned earlier, my work for the past few years has focused on democratic innovations in the context of widespread depravity and dispossession. I take the view that democratic politics, broadly defined, can take root in the most trying of times. And so far, my work has focused on the Philippines, where I have conducted or started conducting ethnographic research in communities affected by disasters, urban crime, and very recently, violent conflict. Um, for this presentation, I will discuss the first two. Um, we can discuss the third case some other time if that project takes off, fingers crossed. And the commonality in these three contexts is that they're all sensitive political contexts. And my goal is to examine um, where citizens find their voice, the overt and insidious forms of silencing that they experience, and how the rudiments of democratic culture are reconstructed on the fly. I'm concerned with everyday practice more than political institutions, and when I do analyze political institutions, it is in relation to how vulnerable citizens experience and assign meanings to these institutions, how they creatively negotiate their relationships with decision makers, and the precise ways in which their agencies are constrained by broader social conditions. So ultimately, I see my work as an ethnographically driven theoretical project that conceptualizes the kinds of publics, in its plural form, that emerge in these limited and limiting contexts. And by publics, I refer to Nancy Fraser's conceptualization as an arena for the production and circulation of discourses. And as Lou mentioned, I'm happy to say that um, this project um, is now coming in the form of a book. Um, it is based on the disaster ethnography, which I will discuss later in this presentation, albeit from a different angle. So basically, over the past three years, I've closely observed the micropolitics of suffering among the poorest communities in Tacloban City, the ground zero of Typhoon Haiyan. Typhoon Haiyan is one of the strongest storms that made landfall in recent history. Um, this entails more than 200 in-depth inter interviews, 12 ethnographic visits over three years, I've examined how disaster-affected communities politicize suffering to gain voice and secure political gains. But you might ask, why focus on misery? Well, misery in the aftermath of a tragedy is often taken for granted, perhaps because it is obvious. Miserable, heartbroken, deprived, humiliated, 
are some of the words my respondents use to describe their conditions. And in fact, markers of misery are still visible in the Kloban. Mass graves and memorials, candle lighting ceremonies, and solemn uh, processions paint the image of a city still in mourning almost five years since the typhoon hit the Philippines. But of course, for ethnographers, what is obvious needs to be unpacked. In the study of political practice, what drew my attention to misery was how this affective state shapes the character of public discourse. As I spent more time in the field, it became apparent to me how misery served as currency for democratic action. Protest movements use the repertoire of misery to demand better treatment from the state. So in this picture, you can see an effigy of former President Aquino, um, and in front of it is um, a cross that carries one of the, the names of one of the victims of the tragedy, and basically it symbolizes how these deaths were basically just put on a garbage can as a, sim as a symbolism of how the former president just ignored um, their suffering. In a congressional inquiry, misery provided discursive power to the testimony of a city mayor about the horror his family endured while escaping a 13-foot storm surge. For a Filipino diplomat, the performance of misery strengthened his appeal for climate justice in the UN Climate Summit in Warsaw, a gathering that took place three days after the disaster. And um, the climate change negotiator from the Philippines actually has Tacloban as his hometown. And at that point, his brother was still missing from the typhoon. And he was able to mobilize that story or that narrative of misery to make a, uh, to make a case for climate justice. And so for many displaced families, it is misery that drives them to insist on their right to the city. So these observations come together in the book as manifestations of how misery enlivens democratic action. Closely linked to misery are attempts of disaster-affected communities to gain voice and visibility in the global public sphere. And I argue that drawing attention to misery is not an easy achievement. After all, attention is the scarcest resource in the age of communicative abundance. The book is motivated by theoretical and practical questions of how democratic theorists and disaster scholars can pay better attention to affective political claims and consider how emotions shape the distribution of power in post-disaster politics. So the approach I take in this book is to propose a multimodal take on discursive participation. I use the term multimodal for better or worse to underscore the embodied, performative, visual, and subtle ways in which affective political claims are constructed and received. And I wish to put an emphasis to the reception component because I, I feel like, especially for um, theorists of deliberative democracy, theorists of discursive democracy, a lot of emphasis is given on talk, what is being said. But rarely do we ask about how these voices are received. So I think responsiveness is an important conceptual category. And in the book, I argue that a robust public sphere is one where there is not only equality in expression, but also an ethical disposition among global spectators to both see and act on the miseries of distant others. Which leads me to the crux of today's presentation. So my presentation today takes off from the conclusions of this book. So I wrapped up my research in disaster-affected communities in November 2017 and started conducting research um, in the streets of Manila. Late last year, I began examining similar themes of victimhood and collective recovery in a slum community in Quezon City that has witnessed the highest concentration of killings in relation to President Rodrigo Duterte's drug war. The project is in the very, very early stages. I have some, but not thick enough, ethnographic data, 
and I'm still not super committed to the storyline I'm about to present, so I very much welcome feedback. Um, for now, I'm not disclosing the field site, given the sensitivity of the data, but this picture was taken there to give you a sense of the environment. It's an urban poor community, not the poorest urban poor community, um, but nevertheless um, a deprived urban slum. And my current research examines the everyday politics of justification in the context of Rodrigo Duterte's murderous war on drugs. It is a war that has killed more than 6,000 people, the same if not more than the number of the typhoon victims. By, when, I, when I say everyday politics of justification, I wish to uncover the underlying logics and rationalities that create a coherent worldview among the supporters of the drug war, as well as the tensions and contestations that fuel public discourse. So I'm not going to dwell on the theory of everyday justifications for now, but I just wish to flag that I draw on Rainer Forst's work on power, which overturns the focus of political theory from inquiring to the justifications of power to inquiring about the power of justifications. Um, I argue that to understand the everyday power of justifications is to understand how power is able to, in varying degrees, influence, determine, occupy, or even seal off the spaces of reasons for others, and thereby shape the distribution of capacities to make collective decisions. So basically, in this analysis, in this ethnographic work, my main unit of analysis is justifications. What justifications are placed on offer to make sense of their support um, for the drug war? I think at this point, I'd like to give a bit of background about the so-called war on drugs. So in a nutshell, two years ago, Rodrigo Duterte was elected president in what started as a tightly contested race. And there are many reasons why he won the presidency. In fact, uh, Duterte studies has become a cottage industry among Philippine studies scholars, including myself, which all tries to make sense of why, after six years of unprecedented economic growth under the reformist Aquino administration, a regime that actually championed good governance and inclusive growth, why would the country elect a man whose campaign promise is literally, I will kill all drug addicts? How can a country one that is notoriously Catholic, the only country in the world that has no divorce aside from the Vatican, and only recently passed legislation that empowers the state to fund contraceptives, elect a man who called Pope Francis a son of a whore and recently called God stupid. There are many reasons for this, and I will not explain them here, but I would like, what I would like to focus on is one aspect of this ethical ambiguity. And that ethical ambiguity asks, why there seems to be an uneven distribution of compassion among victims of tragedies. What do I mean? The photo on the left is an image of a mother who lost her loved ones in Typhoon Haiyan in 2013, my first case study. The photo on the right is an image of a woman who lost her loved one from the drug war in 2017, my next case study. I think what, what makes me curious about these comparisons is how come we respond differently when we see victims of natural disasters vis-a-vis -vis victims of violent deaths, such as families left behind by the drug war, why does the nation respond to these images differently? While there were overwhelming performances of solidarity in the aftermath of the mega-disaster, the drug war has not resulted to telethons to support the drug war's orphans, no Twitter hashtags to mourn the dead, or the creation of mass graves that give visibility to victimhood. So my, my curiosity here, I guess, as a political theorist, is to ask, do some victims deserve compassion while others do not? 
are there hierarchies of misery in Rodrigo Duterte's Philippines? And so this is where the ethnographic work, I think, becomes useful. Because I argue that the responses to the violence of the drug war is different from the suffering inflicted by the typhoon based on three logics of justification. Denialism, complicity, and deservingness. So let's begin with denialism. Denialism um, has various topologies. Some would take a literal interpretation of denialism, which is just to refuse to believe that drug-related deaths are unfolding on a massive scale. And a lot of Rodrigo Duterte's cabinet members espouse this line, that the killings aren't that bad. Some die, but not that much, or that, not that many. Uh, some question the death toll and interrogate the inflated numbers produced by human rights groups. But I think that's the less interesting part. I think what's more interesting is how others perform denialism by contesting the dominant portrayals of the drug war. I think denialism unfolds through a second version, that of negotiation. Let's take the example of May. May's story, I find, is paradigmatic of the many, many narratives I documented in my research. So imagine that May is the woman on the left, although that's not her, because we have to protect the anonymity of our respondents. Um, although this provides a context where I interviewed um, uh, my respondents in Tacloban. So I met May in a resettlement site in Tacloban. After the typhoon, communities living by the coast were evicted and relocated away from tsunami-prone areas to safer ground. A curfew was imposed in the first few months since they moved to that resettlement area on the left. Um, the curfew was imposed because these are neighbors who were uprooted from a certain community and then forced to live with each other in a different community. And so they are unfamiliar with each other. And when they start drinking, it evolves into fistfights. And so there's a security reason why there's a curfew imposed um, in this community. When I talked to May last November, she complained about lifting of the curfew. She said she hoped the rest of the country would look like Duterte's Davao, where an alcohol ban after midnight is imposed. So Duterte was city mayor of Davao for two decades before he ran for president. She also wished what she said, a dose of Duterte on troublemakers. So I freaked out when I heard about this. Uh, May is a soft-spoken woman who sometimes multitasks and talks to me while praying the rosary. So when I asked her, what do you mean a dose of Duterte? She said she hoped her drunken neighbors would get disciplined. She clarified she did not mean killing, she said the media's representation of Duterte was unfair. She said he's just trying to instill fear to the people. She justified Duterte's approach, the tough talk, not the murder, because some people, based on her experience in her neighborhood, are really pig-headed, i.e. the men I'm having San Miguel beer with on the right. And in fact, that photo was taken a day before the 2016 presidential elections, and we were having very serious discussion about um, who they're voting for uh, for president. And of course, you can guess um, who they liked uh, as candidate. Um, in this narrative, May illustrates one variety of denialism. She exemplifies a form of negotiation between what is portrayed in the news and her impression on Duterte. In fact, how can Duterte order mass murder um, if this same man was in Tacloban Days after the typhoon, helping people out with no fanfare, with no entourage snapping selfies, frustrated that people are dying because of government incompetence. Duterte had no obligation to be in Tacloban. He was a city mayor of a city many, many kilometers away, and yet he was there, present, quietly helping, which explains why during the campaign a lot of posters like this uh, were posted around Tacloban City, which basically says it's our turn to help him, Rodney Duterte for president. 
um, from the victims of Typhoon Haiyan or Typhoon Yolanda. Um, the argument here is that how can this man order mass murder if this is the same man who was so compassionate to them during the typhoon? The man who said, pardon my language, I'm just quoting the president, motherfucker, I think God must have been somewhere else when the typhoon hit. He said this as his voice cracked, held back his tears. How can this be the same man who ordered for the genocide of drug addicts? Genocide being Duterte's own term. This man to them is a compassionate, not a murderous man. And they argue that media from Manila do not understand how Duterte functions. So May's narrative, among others, demonstrate how denialism provides an epistemological consistency to the world, to their worldview. And in fact, it becomes interesting when we start listening to the narratives of the victims of the drug war, because we find similar observations. Their version of denialism takes the form of deflecting blame to the police. So when we ask them about their views about the drug war in an informal setting, they often say that it's not Duterte who's at fault, but it's the police. It's the police that causes trouble, not Duterte, because it is the police that have always harassed them with extortion rackets for decades. Some bad cops, says some of our respondents, killed young men about to squeal about how cops make money from the drug trade. And there is hope that it is Duterte who can actually clean up a corrupt police force. And these are communities who also have experience of violent evictions um, when cops try to um, take away their homes. So in these narratives, there is no denial that killings happen, but there is denial that Duterte is responsible for the killings. So there is this disconnect between the chain of command, between the president who says kill all addicts versus the police who actually implements um, these operations. I can say more about this, but I will leave that um, for, for now. So aside from denial, the second observation I offer is complicity. So complicity, I argue, is the politics of looking the other way. Complicity is not passive. It is an active ethical calculation. In the book Duterte Harry, Fire and Fury in the Philippines, John, uh, journalist Jonathan Miller begins with a quote from Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. We lived as usual by ignoring. Ignoring isn't the same as ignorance. You have to work at it. So Filipinos are aware of the killings, but remain intrigued by the president's antics and outbursts. So this photo is taken from one of the uh, workshops that we ran uh, with, the, uh, with the widows of the drug war victims. And this woman actually carries around with her uh, a laminated A4 sheet of paper that calls for justice for her son's death. Um, she was, he, he was shot um, dead as part of the drug war. And she feels like she has to walk around everywhere carrying that lanyard calling for justice for, his, for her son's death because she feels like no one listens, no one pays attention anymore. What we observe here, though, is ignoring is part of an important bargain. We can take a look at Davao City, the city where Duterte was mayor for two decades. Duterte is what da um, Duterte calls Exhibit A. It is a city often likened to Singapore, a city that shows what the country can achieve when it is governed by a strongman. Duterte and his supporters claim that he transformed Davao from the Philippines' murder capital to a peace and order paradise. And one of the logics we observed in our field uh, research is, um, um, <clears throat> is the justification of the victims of the drug war as a collateral damage and a necessary evil. In a way, there appears to be a willingness to turn a blind eye to reports of human rights violations. 
Part of it may be due to fear, but a major part of it, arguably, is a recognition that there are trade-offs when one enters a social contract with a man who has made it clear that he is willing to kill for the sake of peace and order. There will be collateral damage, said one representative of the Philippine Chamber of Commerce and Industry. The president's economic advisor describes drug-related killings as necessary evil in pursuit of greater good. And these are your technocrats, right? These are the same men who are entrusted to run the economy in suits, very respectable professions, but when pushed about their moral calculations would say killing is necessary in pursuit of greater good. Some scholars in Philippine academia locate this argument in relation to the broader debate on Asian values and democracy where collective prosperity is of prime importance over individual rights. Some of my research collaborators, um, Jail Cornelio and Aaron Medina, tackle this form from a theological aspect. And I think this is where the everyday politics of justification becomes important. Earlier, I, I raised a puzzle that how can this country who claims to be super Catholic or super religious be able to justify the logics of killing. So my uh, co-investigators interviewed dozens of Catholic priests, Baptist pastors, evangelical leaders, youth ministers, theologians, and other lay workers. And of course, we find that Catholic leaders are, yes, among the most vocal against the war on drugs. Many of them have criticized police operations. Some of them um, provide legal assistance and counseling services for left-behind families. The picture you see here um, was actually uh, a day before New Year. Uh, there was a mass that the, gay, uh, the, the, the Catholic Church delivered uh, for these victims of the drug war. So it's one of the uh, sites that we observed. Um, but we also find that not all religious leaders are the same. In fact, these efforts were the minority. The majority of our informants did not do anything concrete to assist families left behind um, by those who got killed in the war. Many of them, in fact, actively chose to support the war on drugs. So some groups, for example, organized religious sessions just for police officers to help cops become morally upright. Other religious leaders dismissed the killings. Some even justified that they were necessary. One evangelical pastor has partnered with local officials to identify drug suspects in the community. And this is rather disturbing because drawing up a list of drug suspects is one of the most contentious, most vulnerable to human rights violations, and you have your local community leaders who are religious taking part in drawing that list of drug suspects. So what accounts for the difference? The answer, we find, does not lie in denominational differences. This is because across denominations, we found supporters and critics of the campaign. We propose a different answer. It lies in the specific theological justifications about Duterte and the war on drugs. So for a lot of uh, religious leaders, they see the fate of killed drug users as a consequence of their separation from God. And this is very alien to me as someone who's rather secular. In a manner of speaking, theological leaders see drug addicts as sinful beings. So one religious leader even compared drug users to swine invoking Jesus' injunction to cast not your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn against and rend you. So for these leaders, God has anointed Duterte to compel people to recognize the need for spiritual renewal. And this view welcomes a higher purpose in Duterte's war on drugs by making users and Filipinos in general realize their moral depravity. So one pastor, for example, that was interviewed, um, he leads a Baptist congregation, says... 
Duterte needed, or sorry, God needed to appoint Duterte in order to get Filipinos to repent. So the argument here is to approach Duterte's rule in this manner is to spiritualize drug abuse and to frame it as a renewal of values and salvation of the soul, right? So this is, um, I think, to me, very interesting because it underpins the everyday logics of religious justifications for the drug war. If we look at it from above, it feels like there's a disconnect, right? Why, why would the, why would religious people support the drug war? But these everyday justifications provide the underpinning logics for it, um, which I think is a good point of comparison when it comes to how the nation responded to the disaster. Because when we talk about the suffering of disaster survivors, it was not driven by the logic of looking the other way, but the logic of solidarity, the kind that mobilizes the discourse of nationalism to restore the esteem of the nation battered by an extreme weather event. So this, for example, is one viral meme after the typhoon, uh, which states when, where I'm from, everyone's a hero. So national solidarity after the disaster is a source of collective pride, but complicity to the drug war is not a cause of national shame, but a moment that can be ignored. So I think where I'm headed in this analysis is to say that the force that gives power to Duterte's war on drugs is a citizenry who may be troubled by the death toll, at least based on survey data, but not troubled enough to protest it. And here I would like um, to underscore the part about uh, the citizenry somewhat troubled by the death toll. Yes, there are everyday justifications that render the drug war legitimate to the eyes of religious leaders and some citizens. But it's also important to contextualize this to broader views on the drug war. So here we have polling data in June 2017 that suggests 90% of Filipinos think it is important to keep drug uh, suspects alive. So this is an indication of the rejection of murder as state policy. 90% think um, it's important to keep them alive. 60% think that only the poor are killed in the drug war, which provides an indication that many recognize the one-sidedness of the campaign. Also revealing is the polling data that finds 73% of Filipinos worrying that someone they know will be a victim of summary executions. And finally, half of poll respondents disagree with the president's view that those engaged in illegal drug trade do not have the capacity to change anymore. And so this, I argue, reinforces the argument of complicity, that there may be some disagreements about the drug war, but not enough to protest it. But I also argue that there's nothing exotic about the Philippine case, right? I mean, all over the world, we see communities living double lives where complicity is necessary for daily survival. All of us shelve troubling information, whether it is melting polar ice caps, starving children, um, or why we are not donating a third of our salary to UNICEF. So to understand the seeming lack of outrage in the Philippines, I think, is also to understand the very same conditions that normalize apathy and oppression elsewhere. The final logic I wish uh, to discuss is deservingness. And on this point, I'd like to draw some consistent observations from both disaster and drug war affected communities. In both communities, I find that the concept of virtuous citizenship is important in making their ethical calculations about the hierarchies of suffering. So when I look back in my field no on my field notes in Tacloban, before, um, when Duterte became a serious, pol uh, serious political contender for presidency, I realized that othering of drug addicts has already been deeply rooted in everyday narratives of my respondents. I just wasn't paying attention. If I were paying attention, I wouldn't have been surprised why Duterte's anti-drug campaign 
has been very resonant to a lot of my respondents. So one construction worker considers it his personal shame when he recommends his mates for a job to his employer only to find out that they would show up late for work because they snorted something. A school teacher finds it unacceptable that some of her neighbors fall in the bait of the drug trade while she had to find creative and decent ways to make money, such as selling macaroni and plastic pails in the market during weekends or hauling Avon cosmetics on weeknights to clients in gated communities when her paycheck could not last another week. Um, the argument here is that in the context of virtuous citizenship, coupled by latent anxieties caused by illegal drugs, Duterte had the material to politicize these anxieties and politicize the virtuous citizenships, the self-image that these virtuous citizens have. The populist logic of portraying addicts as dangerous other is a response to a citizenry that already considers addicts as the other but did not have the confidence to name and shame the enemy. So this picture is taken from Tacloban where a lot of men volunteer their time to rebuild houses without any payment. They see themselves as very virtuous and they get really annoyed that some of the addicts in their communities jeopardize the possibility that they will continue to receive aid because aid is conditional on good behavior. So there is that tension between the virtuous citizens and the so-called dangerous others. And so what Duterte did was to render visible the sense of unfairness that virtuous citizens had endured. Duterte, in other words, responded to a particular kind of voice, a voice that demands quick solutions using the language of retribution. As historian Vicente Rafael puts it, what Duterte shares with the constituents is not a sort of policy proposal or political vision, but the residues of an injured pride and frayed ego. So populist personalities provide the sense that virtuous people are getting their dues by clamping down on undeserved beneficiaries of a failing system. In Duterte's case, this takes the form of what Wataru Kusaka describes as bandit-like morality, where compassion and violence coexist under a patriarchal boss. But does this only apply to citizens who consider themselves virtuous, those who are not drug users? Well, not necessarily. And here the data becomes particularly confronting. Um, when we, and by we I mean my collaborators in the Philippines, um, Professor Gin Gutierrez from the University of the Philippines and Bianca Franco, when they interviewed men who are in congested jails because of drug-related charges, the logic that surfaces is also the logic of deservingness. So when we probe the views of inmates about the drug war, we notice that the disapproval against killings is only limited to killing of innocent people. Our respondent, for example, said, if the person is notorious for hassling the youth, then why, why should they not be killed? There are people that deserve to be killed, the irredeemable junkies who depend on substances that shrink the brain. Um, why do inmates find this logic of deservingness compelling? We argue it is because distinguishing themselves from the real culprits is important for their personal narratives that build um, their esteem. See, some inmates admitted to using crystal meth several times a week to be productive at work. They are shift drivers or scavengers in a dump site just like this one from our field site. Crystal meth is used not as a vice, but a stimulant to be a productive member of society. They do not consider themselves to be addicts or slaves of drug use. This distinction between able-bodied men who can control their use of drugs versus those who end up with addiction explains why the same men who got arrested, some even tortured because of, drug, um, because of drug charges, are the same men who support the killings. 
The argument is some men deserve to die, but they are not one of them. And they want to hold on to that narrative, that they are not the irredeemable junkies. They are on drugs because they're productive, or they need the drugs to be productive. So there is even, so I guess what I'm saying is even among these men, the logic of deservingness still surfaces because it's important for their esteem to, to construct that personal narratives that they are different from those who got shot um, in the drug war. Now, I think it's time um, to wrap up, and I, I assure you there is a logic um, to this picture. Um, I would like to be clear that I do not think there should be an even valuation of suffering, but I also think it's important to surface the politics of everyday justifications among those who are often portrayed as under Duterte's dark spell. I don't think they're under a dark spell. I think they're actively engaged in ethical calculations. And it is by understanding the ethical calculations of those who suffer themselves can we better grasp how violence is legitimized and negotiated. But there is one point I didn't mention today, and it's a very important one, and it is that of contestation. The narratives of violence, while having an enduring quality, are also contested and reinterpreted. And here's my example of creative forms of dissent. The group Bloc Duterte launched a campaign called Piss at the Dictatorship. So basically, they uploaded pictures of Duterte that you can download online, print on a sticker, and stick on a male urinal for people to piss at the dictatorship. So last July, Duterte's thir uh, third State of the Nation address was met with the biggest protest yet. The left, liberals, student movements, feminist groups, some religious and faith-based organizations group that personally hate each other, banded together to demand accountability from what they consider to be a recklessly murderous regime. This was a very, very stark contrast from Duterte's first year in office. In his first year in office, the question for political observers was who will burn Duterte's effigy, considering progressive movements opted to ally with the first president who claimed to be socialist. Today, the protest movement against Duterte appears to be taking the character of a broad church where groups that, by virtue of their core beliefs, that clash with each other, but nevertheless march together to reject Duterte's um, policies. And I guess in conclusion, it's just worth thinking about what these developments say about Philippine democracy. Uh, one can assert that democracy remains vibrant and contested, but enacted outside the state. Um, I think if there's one important lesson that can be learned from the dark era of Ferdinand Marcus's authoritarian rule, it is that as, as tyrants seek to concentrate power to the center, resistance grows in the margins, and ultimately societies are stronger than strong men. So I'll end my presentation there. Yes, there is a Korean national uh, who was shot dead, um, kidnapped by cops. There was a lot of outrage there. But I think what has been the iconic killing so far is the case of a teenager. His name is Kian de los Santos. Uh, he was shot dead. And the narrative was so powerful because this is a boy who was, whose final words before he was shot by the cops was, please stop, I would like to go home, I would like to study for an exam tomorrow. 
that has been immortalized even in um, a children's storybook was actually made uh, to tell this boy's story as a form of information dissemination. And there were big protests to demand justice for this teenager who was, um, yeah, who was shot because of the drug war. I would tend to be critical about this narrative because I think it still builds on this idea that there is such thing as a deserving victim, a victim that deserves compassion, that victimhood is performative in the same way that disaster survivors were deserving victims because they were ideal victims compared to junkies who are not deserving victims, right? So I think that yeah, your informational question kind of opens up questions about um, yeah, what drives people to create those hierarchies of solidarity, who deserves solidarity and who doesn't deserve um, the same um, democratic form of organi organization and democratic forms of solidarity. Thanks. Um, so we have Lee and then Hague. Thanks, Nicole. Fantastic. Um, I was just want to think about the, what role access to information plays in all the narratives that you build and whether there's actually like hierarchies of information in that if um, conceptualizing information very ideal terms here in that if people know there's objective truth to let's say take the, the narrative about some people more deserving of being killed than, than others if people know that as in if people know this person selling drugs does that change how they respond to Duterte's drug war? I mean, the impression I got was that, what's I'm trying to, okay, take the, um, the typhoon. Mm. Everybody knows that that was not caused by man. Yeah. I mean, global warming is man-made, but anyway. Yeah. All right, but not everybody knows who is selling drugs and who is not selling drugs. Right. So does that change then the misery component of it and that how people sort of respond to this assault by Duterte? I mean, right. I mean, people have different access to information yeah, 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 and they, sure. they use information in different ways. And so if people were more informed about who is actually the bad guys here, mm. would that change anything? Yes. Well, it depends who the spectator is, right? So if we go to a deep dive of the communities, let's say the widows themselves, they will say, yes, my partner, my boyfriend sells drugs, but he's not the big fish. Someone else should have been killed. But if we ask the neighbors, the neighbors will say, yeah, they're junkies, they deserve it, right? So I guess it's the same information, yeah. low-level drug dealer, but the assessments, the calculus is different. I think what's more interesting here are people observing from a distance, which I haven't systematically studied yet. I think the next phase of the project is to understand how middle class thought leaders appreciate how culpable these people are with a drug war. The proxy information we can get are discussions online. And all of them say, yeah, they're addicts. So when I, so I shadowed I shadowed this woman for a day, and we had a look at her Facebook account when her son was shot dead. And if we use online engagement as proxy, which is super bad proxy, her son was trolled. She was trolled. They were saying, yeah, you guys are addicts. Look at you. You look like an addict. And she's like, yeah, I'm an addict, but why am I not deserving of, of any compassion? So yeah, I think, yeah, in, in that sense, information is present. The news report was clear. Um, 
But in any case, there was still that judgment of deservingness for for the killings. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for the presentation. Uh, uh, it's it's um, something I don't know a great deal about. It's very interesting and sophisticated. Uh, what I want to suggest or press you on is that there are different aspects of your approach, but underlying all of them is actually something you don't address. And that's the question of justice. Because all the things, all the different things you interrogate are actually derived from the concept of justice. So the history is actually is, is a consequence of understanding what is just or unjust uh, pain or enduring something. Yep. Deservingness is inconceivable without a notion of justice, just deserts, unjust deserts, and so on. And in fact, the whole law and justice agenda is precisely based on this conception of justice. So I want to invite you to, um, and, and I'm interested in your opinion of <clears throat> what is the conception of justice that's play, being played out in different ways here? Uh, by the way, I should also add the theodicy argument, the theological argument, yeah. is precisely a justice argument. Right, right. We are all sinners, so we should do something about it, and so on. So rather than having three or four different aspects, it seems to me all of them can be traced to a core puzzle, which is what is the Philippine regime's or the Philippine social conception of justice? That they want someone like Duterte to come in and clean up the place, to do the right thing, to do justice, even if there are fringe problems, as they put it, right? Yeah. And so how is that different from anyone else's justice? Right. That, yeah, that's that's a fantastic comment. And yeah, we did, my, my, my research collaborators and I did think about coding the data using the lens of justice. We haven't done it yet, but it's definitely on the agenda. Um, so yes, thanks for that comment. But I guess just a little um, background or defense why the focus of my topic has been uh, misery. It's, it's well, uh, the main the main reason for it is because I'm talking to, I'm talking to the literature on democratic contestation, which has been heavily influenced by the discourse of rationality, cognitive justifications, arguments, and complexity. So at least um, with the book project that I introduced earlier, the argument here is how emotions and effective forms of communication also have the power to create arguments uh, that can persuade global audiences um, whether to adopt a particular policy or lend compassion to other victims, which is why the focus has been on, on misery as an effective state. Uh, the argument being, while a lot of communications theorists say that emotions are so important for democratic politics, the book also argues that, hang on a minute, emotions also create hierarchies of misery, and it doesn't necessarily equalize um, the discursive playing field. So that's the reason why I focused on it. But definitely the argument about coding the data based on conceptions of justice is entirely possible. I mean, if, especially since the unit of analysis is everyday justifications, right? May I just add one more comment? Yeah. I think my challenge to you is even deeper. Passions for affectus, as you call it, and so on, by themselves cannot have any effect unless they speak through the lens of justice. Right. That's the point I made. Okay. Right. Yes. So, if I go to the dentist and the dentist drills my tooth and it hurts. It hurts, that's misery. But I don't get indignant. Right. Because I have a discursive understanding of the passion. It's filtered through the sense 
of this is good for me, I deserve it, or it's proper, and it's right. good, and so on. So passion by itself yeah. is meaningless without disc discourse of justice. That's, I guess that's a challenge I pose for you. I'll stop there. Yes, thank you. And it does speak to the deservingness argument. Thanks. Um, thank you very much, Nicole, and, and uh, yeah, for the vision being great, and also like you know, putting to two hundred people the, the whole uh, interviews and stuff. Like you know, respect <laughs> all this. Um, I'm not a theorist, so my questions are going to be at least the first one is probably a bit blunt. But I kind of understand why people have several levels of misery. I mean, of understanding with the typhoons and the drugs, and in a sense. I don't, basically, you know, typhoon is by chance. Some people may argue, I wouldn't agree, but some people may argue that the drugs argument is, in a sense, by choice, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, again, I've been appalled by listening to the Guardian, some of the, uh, some podcasts about, you know, that they were consuming drugs in order to work, which was like, hold oh, on, this is not the understanding that, you know, the society is all about drugs, right? But, uh, but in a sense, trying to put those two elements like equaling. I, I, I mean, I think you have a point just studying the drugs thing and seeing how the people understand and just with the three arguments, right? Because putting it with the typhoon thing, again, it, it's a chance, right? Well, the other, some people may argue that it's, and you know, you cannot argue that you choose to be in a typhoon, right? Like yeah. the other thing itself. That would be the first part. The second part is that I think you have a, I mean, the, the project seems to me it's brilliant, but I, and I would, push you to, to look at it, at it in, in a comparative perspective. I was thinking with a lot of what you were saying on, about Philippines with the drug, with the drugs victims, I was just thinking about what is going on in Mexico. And, uh, and you know, a lot of what you were showing, like some of the, you know, the question would be whether some of the mechanisms are reproducing in some of the countries. And uh, you were mentioning desirability, complicity, and, and deservingness, right? And I'm pretty convinced that the deservingness part for a while before Calderon took office, kind of, you know, was among the things, it was not public, but, you know, as long as you were not involved, things mm -hmm. happened and nobody got mixed, yeah. right? But after Calderon took office in 2006, then, you know, people were like, hold on, what's, what's, what's going on? Because it's affecting, you know, the regular bystander here. Right. And how so people were getting shot who were not involved in the Right, country. and then it's um, like, hold on. And then is when you have mass mobilization on the streets, people saying, what on earth is going on? And then the tree takes over again, and then the Yotina Tata happens, you know, yeah. the students disappear, it's like, hold on. And so in a sense, to me, with the mechanisms that you're proposing, I think they make a lot of sense. And I would push you further in the future research, but again, this is not for, for now. It's, it's pretty, yeah. I'm pretty happy with what you've done, but, uh, you know, that, that would be the other thing. And then finally, with the theological justification, I, I, I was very unsurprised. I mean, yeah, I think that they repeat themselves. You know, I was thinking about the church, what you were saying, and I was thinking about my own country and, and how the church was justifying the behavior with the, with the liberals or with the labor or with the socialists. Yeah. Uh, in, in Spain, during the dictatorship, like it was, oh, you yeah, know, we're going to have to clean you because you've been bad, right? Yeah. And, and I would like to see, not to see, but. It, Maybe in a sense, if you want to see like how they react, it could be several projects within one, right? One of them about comparing how the church, Catholic church in this case, has been behaving when uh, in these sort of misery situations, which mm -hmm. maybe after a civil war conflict or in the case that, that you were posing. You know, for me, were a lot of parallelisms there. It was like, hold on. And, and I really like what you said, you know, Philip, it is not, a, it's not a, 
uh, an outlier, right? There are big patterns here that yeah. we could observe. So I'm giving you some examples that in a sense right. can, can be useful for you in the future. So yeah, very much interesting. Thanks. Right. Thanks. Um, you're right about um, the comparison. I mean, I also got this comment when I presented this in other contexts about the puzzle I pose, like why is there a differential valuation of compassion of disaster victims versus a drug war? I mean, isn't that obvious? Misfortune versus agency, right? Um, but I think there's something deeper than that which I haven't figured out. Like, it's the disposability of lives, right? Because it's not just people died because of nat natural causes in the typhoon. I mean, there are perpetrators of killings in the drug war, which I think lends some, which, which is I think a theoretically rich area to understand what constitutes disposable lives, if we use Judith Butler's term, right? Why, why are there theological justifications that some lives can be sacrificed for the greater, for the greater good? So it's not just a matter of, of course, they're different, differently valued because the contexts are different. Okay, yeah, that, that's the premise. Contexts are different. But what accounts for the disposability? What are the underlying everyday logics that justify the disposability of others' lives? Why can't we say rehabilitation is better? Why can't we say a technocratic approach to the drug war is better? It's not as if these alternatives aren't present on the table. They've always been present in national conversations. It's just that when Duterte became president, suddenly disposability of lives reached the center of the national agenda. What accounts for that transition, right? So I, th I think that's, that's, that's my puzzle. It's not just the contexts are different, but something happened that allows these justifications to be legitimate justifications in the public sphere. Um, your comment about the church, I think, is also very important. For the longest time, I've resisted analyzing the church as a political player in the Philippines just out of personal bias. But now I think it's very obvious. And one of the um, main lessons that I learned working on this project is how fragmented uh, the church is in the Philippines. It's not enough to say the Philippines is a Catholic country. The Philippines is a Catholic country, but Catholicism is practiced differently. There are many textures and iterations and performances of Catholicism. And even in the Catholic church, um, the Jesuits, for example, are very much fragmented. Some still support Duterte, others don't. So there is, um, there is a lot to say about that. But I think I will go with my collaborator's argument that maybe denominations is not the main category to analyze church responses. It's the specific levels of justification that church leaders and their, what do you call them? Not constituents, parishioners, <laughs> flocks, sure, parishioners. Um, it's, it's the level of justification that unites them more than the formal denomination in which they belong. Yeah, so thanks. Thank you for the comments. I wanted to pick up on the comparative. I mean, also, is, is the Philippines' ideas of justice different from anyone else? Because listening to what you were saying, which, which I really liked, by the way, I should have started by saying that. I was thinking about the way in which Indonesians have reacted to the murders of 1965-66 and the so-called mysterious killings in the early 80s, because they've got similarities there. And when I look, when, you, when I sort of think about the rationales, what have you been saying here rings lots of bells. The deservingness clearly is, is evident in both cases very strongly. But the thing which really struck me, and I 
this reflects my background, I suppose, was the theological elements to it. Because in so many parts of the Indonesian reaction to those things is the theological argument, these guys were had distanced themselves from God. Mm. And therefore they deserved to have things happen. And Suharto, whoever, is simply not quite the hand of God, but doing God's work, if you like. But I think it also, in the Indonesian context, and I'd be interested to see whether it happens in the Philippines as well, some of that leaks into the natural disaster argument as well. Because one of the things which really surprised me after the Aceh tsunami mm -hmm. of 2005 was the number of religious people who said, this is God's retribution because the society had become sinful. Right. And it's sort of, as an anecdote, I find it interesting that in, when you see disasters like that, and I'll exaggerate here for the sake of argument, but I'll assert it's not altogether untrue, the first thing that gets rebuilt is the mosque. Yeah. It's not a church, it's not a um, education centre, it's not a hospital, it's not a government centre, it's the mosque. Because yeah. you need to re-establish that kind of religious legitimacy, is that the word? I'm not sure. Yeah. But the standing, we've done something wrong here, we've got to get over it. So I'm not, in that context, not entirely sure that the reactions to natural disasters and human caused disasters are necessarily, in a the theological sense, right. necessarily that far apart. I'm skating on thin ice, I know, but just sort of putting it up together. No, that's completely fair. I mean, actually, it's interesting because Typhoon Haiyan, I think, just because of the magnitude of it, the, the, the argument of deservingness didn't surface as much. I mean, I, I quoted some social media interactions with this, and there are some, like, um, they deserve to die because the government already told them to leave their homes, but they stayed in their homes anyway, but not as much compared to other disasters in Manila. I guess because the victims in Manila, rather than a rural, well, it's a city, but kind of still rural, community is very different because urban poor in Manila, Manila are not deserving victims, you know, these are the, these are muggers and they're cost traffic and, the, you know, so there's the, this, there's this level of, there's this, this, this juncture between levels of deservingness. But yeah, so maybe I don't see it as much. What would be interesting, I think, is if this project takes off, um, if I'm able to look at the conflict, post-conflict uh, zone, because the, the allocation of responsibility here is different. This is an Islamic city taken over by ISIS militants. And basically, it looks like Aleppo now. And I was here uh, last January. And, and the, lo the logic of compassion um, uh, among Filipinos wasn't so overwhelming. There were no hashtags. There were hashtags pray for Marawi in the same way there were hashtags pray for Paris, but not like the Haiyan overwhelming levels of support. So maybe that's a better comparison. It's part accident, part, not, part misfortune, but also part accountability. Right, because it's communities who, who coddled terrorists, supposedly. So maybe I would, that's a better comparison. And the religious aspect is obviously very obvious here as well. So yes, thanks, thanks for that point. Um, Nicole, fantastic. Great to hear from you. Thank you. My, I'm interested in how global public audiences respond to those affective kinds of uh, points of communication. And I wonder if you've thought about this at all. I mean, well, no, you have thought about it, and you, you mentioned how, you know, we've we've started to see 
justification in all sorts of forms mm. around all sorts of issues, but specifically around the Philippines. Mm. You know, the global response or the public response to Haiyan was so different yeah. to Duterte and the war, and has been so different, and it's surprising yeah. globally that our, our discourse is yeah. moving in a, a similar way. And I wonder if that's on your agenda going forward at all. Yes, that's actually a lot to think about. Um, so one chapter in the book, but the book only focuses on, on the disaster. Mm. There's a chapter that I call Spectacular Publics. Mm. So the kind of public that emerged right after Haiyan, first 100 days, was a global spectacular public that was able to mobilize solidarity to disaster survivors. So here I'm talking about Pope Francis mm. mobilizing support among Catholics. The most important player when we did the Twitter map was One Direction, particularly Liam Payne <laughs> and Harry Styles. <laughs> this is serious, right? Like, biggest traction in terms of gaining global support, drawing broader attention, global attention to Haiyan, are your global celebrities. Um, quarterbacked by the diaspora community of Filipinos. So in Australia, for example, you have a Zumbathon or a latte, latte fundraising or a barbecue fundraising to, to emphasize that, yes, you have your global influencers drawing attention to Haiyan, creating discourses of solidarity, quarterbacked by the, by the diasporic community, because that's what good citizens, global citizens, do. Interestingly, the Filipino diasporic community are big Duterte supporters. Mm. We're talking about Filipinos in the Middle East, uh, Filipinos in Laos, who just would pack a stadium when Duterte arrives. And I think that Duterte won in Australia among the Filipino diasporic population as well. And I think one interesting thing here is the argument is the diasporic logic of global Filipinos aren't very different. They mimic local discourses. They are not thought leaders. They're not agenda setters. They just mirror, um, they just mirror local discourses. So in a way, I think part of the reason why there's not a lot of global support or indignation against the drug war is because there's no one to quarterback mm. that discourse among diasporic communities. And of course, no celebrity would say that they're to stop killing. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't. They wouldn't do that. It's just not mm. in their. You know, I, well, One Direction doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you know your global celebrities would, would say something like this. Not even Bono, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Thank you. Um, great presentation. Very much enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was quite interesting when you. Um, we're uh, commenting on, on public opinion data, and you see the disconnect between mm -hmm. uh, public attitudes towards the war on drug and support for Duterte, uh, who is like, you know, uh, um, political agenda, like uh, the drug on war, uh, war on drugs is a big, um, big issue. So, thinking a bit comparatively, uh, again, that reminded me a bit about what's going on in, uh, in Europe with this whole de debate on, on immigration. And there, too, you also see a lot of voters who are willing to, uh, to support these uh, far-right parties uh, yeah. uh, who uh, harbor, like, you know, who advocate policy views that are more extreme than, uh, than, than the views they have, like voters have. And so I was wondering if there are, like, uh, there are, like parallels between, between the two. So one thing you see a lot in Europe is that so first, this whole immigration thing increasingly is being constructed as an emergency, as mm -hmm. an emergency situation. And the second thing uh, also I think that, mm, so to some extent, this is also 
part of a broader like populist uh, backlash uh, against elites for sort of like excluding this kind of issue from, from the public agenda for, for really a long time. These big changes have been happening without like issues like immigration really being politicized, without being debated, without a proper kind of democratic deliberation. Yeah. So I was trying, if, uh, I was wondering if you see this also in, uh, in the case of the dragon war here in the Philippines. Like, is it also constructed as an emergency? Uh, do you also see in your respondents this kind of frustration that this issue that was obviously really important for them uh, wasn't really on the agenda of the previous political establishment, mm -hmm. despite their their good results when it comes to economic growth and uh, yeah. good governance. They sort of like uh, uh, just like overlooked this, and yeah. uh, that could be like a, you know part of the picture. Yeah, absolutely. I think what's very interesting about the drug issue in the Philippines is first and foremost the official statistics, even the government's own data, says that the Philippines level of drug use is much lower than the global average, even much lower than Australia's. But what happened? So when polling firms ask people um, about their top issues, they always say inflation, unemployment, I think the third is health. I could be wrong on the third one, but it's always inflation and unemployment. When Duterte ran for president, and they polled people again and asked, what are the top issues you want your presidential candidate to address? Suddenly, crime drugs. So obviously, um, Duterte kind of shifted the, the, the issues, the list of issues that people think are important to them. So what accounts for this? Um, some ethnographic impressions that I have suggest that drugs has always been a privatized issue. Meaning, if there's a drug addict in the community, even in my disaster community, I mean, in, in this community of resettlement um, sites, they've always been talking about addicts, but the response is internal. Talk to your community leader, give counseling services, um, send your child to a far flung, to the countryside so you know he can cool his head. So it's always a privatized response. But they know it's a problem. I mean, I remember going to my field site and I have to organize my roots going back home because by six o'clock the potheads will be on the street corner and I might get harassed. So if I, you know, by six o'clock I have to go the other way. By six o'clock I have to be escorted by a local in that community. But to me at that point, it just meant nothing. I mean, yeah, of course, you just have to be safe. But imagine having to go home every day in that context, right? You're always anxious, there's always this um, irritating but not life-changing kind of situation. There's just some anxiety there. And then suddenly, this man just says, kill them all, right? Wouldn't it be a much better place if your neighbor's husband, who used to beat her up every day because he's a crackhead, will suddenly be gone? And that's a context that I've observed um, in, the, in the three years that I went to Tacloban on and off. So I think um, what made the difference here is, I guess, similar to what happened in Europe. There is this anxiety, it's happening you know, behind the scenes, but it takes one leader who can politicize what was once privatized, right? So um, it's not an invented discourse. The anxiety has always been there, but I think for political theory, the curiosity is why that 
voice, the politics of the law, the way it was articulated, the crassness, the vulgarity. Why is that acceptable? And the argument is it's acceptable because it's a crisis, right? So when Duterte says, um, you know, when, when, when Duterte uses the very vulgar language of motherfucker, kill them all, of course you would talk that way because it's a crisis. You wouldn't say, I want to geotag all of these communities and find out where the addicts are. That's not the language of crisis. The language of crisis is the language of war, right? So in the same way that you have these very scandalous pictures of, of Nigel Farage and the refugees just taking over the UK. So you're right. Um, it's politicized, but it's not manufactured. There, there is definitely something present there, but behind the scenes, in private, that was able to make its way to the public sphere. And that's where politics, I think, is important. That's the real politique of it. You're taking on the really hard questions and trying to explain why that discourse sticks. Right. Pauline Hansen has been saying the same thing for right. years and years, but it hasn't stuck. Right. And uh, why did it, why did it work for Duterte in this instance? You know, how was how was he able to activate that? So, any other questions? Any final questions? Okay, fantastic, terrific. Thank you so much. Thank for you. Thanks for the talk.